This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, and these are the words that he pens. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment should have been sold for more than 300 denarii and it given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one who who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Your outline comes to you this morning by way of the movements in the text. Number one, if you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so, is this, the plot. The plot. Let me draw your attention back to verses 1 and 2. Find them there in your Bible. It was now two days before the Passover. We're getting very close now to the crucifixion of Christ, two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus. They were doing so by stealth. They wanted to kill him, but they said so, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. You know, it's no surprise that the Jewish religious leaders, that's the religious establishment, has wanted to kill Jesus for some time now. Very very early on in Mark's gospel, we saw uh, the religious leaders, the the scribes, the chief priests, uh, the the Sadducees, uh, wanting to take Jesus out. They had already decided that they must put Jesus to death, but for fear of of a popular uprising, uh, they, they kept from seizing him openly here in our uh, text. They were fearful uh, that because of all the crowd that had come in from the surrounding uh, regions into Jerusalem for the Passover, they feared if they tried to take Jesus out now, it would create quite the stir. It would create quite the uproar. Jesus was surrounded by thousands of Galilean pilgrims who would have certainly stepped up and taken his side if the religious leaders had sought to take him out during the Passover feast. And so the leaders determined not to seize him during the feast, uh, but to do so afterward. Apparently they planned to arrest him after the crowds had gone home, but as we'll see at the end of our text, Jesus, or Jesus, (laughs) I'm going to get these right at some point uh, this morning. Judas, 
finds an opportunity to betray Jesus. And so there's an unexpected offer that takes place which ramps everything up. And uh, Jesus is betrayed at the end of our text this morning. A little context about the Passover. Uh, this was the time when, when the Jewish people would come into Jerusalem and they would celebrate the remembrance of God's gracious provision while they were in uh, Egyptian captivity. The fact that God provided for him. God was their rescuer. God was their savior during Egyptian captivity. During that captivity, God declared that he was sending a plague to kill the firstborn of every family and beast in Egypt. And so God told the Israelites to take for themselves a lamb, not just any lamb, but a lamb without spot, without defect, without blemish, and to sacrifice it. And after that lamb was sacrificed, that lamb's blood was to be sprinkled on the doorpost and the lintel of their homes. For when the angel of the Lord came to execute judgment, he would pass over every house, every home that bore the blood of the unblemished lamb. Don't turn there, just listen to what God tells the Israelites at the end of Exodus chapter 12. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast." So everything that Jesus has been doing, the whole movement of Mark's gospel has been leading up to this point. We saw it particularly or specifically at the triumphal entry when Jesus rides into Jerusalem just days before this very Passover feast. But we all know the end of the story. We know that Jesus, the innocent, the spotless lamb without a defect or blemish, he would hang on Calvary's cross as other lambs were being slaughtered for the Passover feast. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would be hanging on a cross just across town. You see the irony of the story? This was always God's uh, plan A here. Always God's plan A. Uh, but we see, beginning our text this morning, the plot of the religious leaders they were plotting to kill Jesus, but they were fearful of an uprising. Jesus had many enemies, but Jesus had some supporters as well. And thousands of Galileans would have run to his aid if the religious leaders had sought to take him by force during the Passover. And so here we are, just two days from this celebration of remembrance. God's freeing his people from Egyptian captivity and uh, God's people celebrating that in remembrance in Jerusalem. Number two, write this down, the preparation. We see not only the plot, which is to take Jesus out, we see the preparation there as well. Look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table, and a woman with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, she came and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
Now, the home that Jesus is at here belongs to Simon the leper. And it's interesting to note that we don't know anything else about Simon the leper. The Gospels don't say anything specifically about him other than the fact that Jesus was in his house this day. But it's very probable, it's very likely that Simon the leper had had some sort of previous interaction with Jesus and that Jesus had healed him. Because Jesus and the guest would likely have not been in Simon's house if he still had leprosy. And so likely at some point in Jesus' ministry, he had come into contact with Simon the leper, he had healed him, and Simon now no longer had leprosy. If you were looking in the window here, if you were just an onlooker kind of peering in the window, you would see all the men reclining at the table, uh, which was really reclining on the ground here. That, that was the, the common way that, that, uh, that eating took place in Jesus' day. You would recline there along the ground. The people here would have been enjoying and celebrating the company of Christ. The women, on the other hand, would have been gathered around the outside of the table standing uh, as they were rarely found reclining around the table with men. And from John's account of this evening, we find Martha. Precious Martha serving Christ, busy attending to him. She wasn't even in her own house and she was serving. She was always serving. As a matter of fact, the last time we found her, she had been invited, I'm sorry, she rather had invited Jesus into her own home and she had served him well there. If you can remember back to that account, uh, that was when Martha was reproved for being anxious and troubled about many things. That's, she was serving out of duty rather than delight. Uh, but Martha didn't do away with serving. And so Martha here was one of the guests. Simon, uh, the leper, one of the guests. And Mary, Mary, one of the guests. Mary, the same Mary that we see sitting at Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 10, is once again sitting at the feet of our Lord. And in an act of pure love and devotion to Christ, Mary lavishly pours her most costly possession on Jesus. A pound of expensive ointment. Just to give you the context of the amount, a pound would have been uh, somewhat like what would fit in an aluminum can. A 12-ounce aluminum can uh, would have been just about the amount there. That's a relatively small amount of ointment to carry with it the cost of 300 denarii which we'll see here in just a moment. But Mary wasn't concerned about the cost. She wasn't concerned about the cost. This was a totally uncalculated move by Mary. She wasn't sitting around previously thinking, I, I really want to use this ointment to worship Jesus, but I, I really need to be careful about how much of it I use. Maybe I'll use half. No, no, no. Maybe I'll use a quarter of it. Uh, maybe a few drops here and there. Mary wasn't sitting around calculating how much of the ointment she was going to use on Jesus. She wasn't sitting around thinking, oh, it's really expensive, maybe I should keep some back. No, Mary enters the scene here with absolute reckless abandonment, and she pours the entire contents out on Jesus. One among many lessons that we can learn from Mary is that she wasn't thinking about herself. Love spares no charges. Love holds nothing back. 
Love regrets that when it has given all that it has, it has nothing left to give. That's what we see in the heart of Mary here. Mark doesn't name her. John does. We know exactly who it is that we're talking about here. Mary, the same Mary that was found sitting at Jesus' feet back in Luke chapter 10. And here she is with absolute reckless abandonment, taking her most prized possession and emptying its contents upon her Lord. One pastor said, if we would learn to sit at Jesus' feet, we too would, uh, would learn to give more. This was Mary's attitude here. She so loved her Lord that she sacrificed that which was of greatest cost to her in worship to him. We can measure our love by our sacrifice. You want to know how much you love something? Well, just ask yourself, what are you willing to sacrifice for that thing, for that person? You can measure your love by your sacrifice. We see that in the person and work of the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We can see the measure of his love by his sacrifice. This pound of expensive ointment that Mary lavished upon Christ would have cost about a year's wages. We learned that from the text. As a general pay for a laborer was about a denarii a day, take out the Sabbath days and the other holy days, and there you have it, about a year's wage. But Mary, like King David in 2 Samuel chapter 24, she refused to give to God that which cost her nothing. The only reason that a, that a woman would have such expensive ointment in her dowry was for her wedding day or perhaps her own funeral. It's very likely that the ointment that Mary uh, poured upon Jesus was for her own wedding one day or was set aside for her own funeral. This whole instance here, this, this whole picture probably created a few minutes of absolute silence as Mary anointed Christ. You see, that wasn't on the agenda for this evening. That wasn't on the list of things to do this evening. This was completely unprompted. It was not a part of the plan. Mary interrupted the dinner, and now all eyes are fixated on her. Everyone has is, is got missile lock on what Mary is doing here. It's also interesting to note here that Mary carelessly broke all cultural norms. She approaches the table. Women would have typically been around the outside of the table. She breaks that cultural norm. She anoints Jesus' feet. What do we know about feet? We know they were considered absolutely disgusting. Only the lowliest of low would wash or wipe another's feet. And then hair. Oh, hair was another thing. For a woman to let down her hair, she would have been seen as a harlot. Mary cared not. She approaches the table. She stoops at Jesus' feet. She lets her hair down, and she touches Jesus' feet with her hair. You know, the, the hair of a Jewish woman was considered her glory. And so the picture we see here is of Mary laying down her glory at Jesus' feet. One of the most marginalized and culturally filthy parts of the body uh, in Jesus' day, Mary is absolutely prostrate before. 
Jesus' feet. And if that didn't already drop jaws, if that didn't already make eyes wide-eyed, as Mary let her hair down again, uh, you would have heard an audible gasp in the room. She would have immediately been thought of as a woman with loose morals. Mary wasn't concerned about what people thought about her. She was fixated on Jesus. I think there's a lesson there we can learn too. Right? All too often we are so concerned about what other people think of us. Mary is a good example here about not being concerned about what other people think about us. She was fixated on Jesus. Fixated on Jesus. As Jesus, or as uh, Mary rather, broke this this, uh, this flask of costly ointment, the fragrant aroma would have filled the house. Everyone would have known with what price Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. The smell would have given it away. Matter of fact, the Greek word here used to describe the ointment is pistis. That is, the ointment was faithful or it was true or it was genuine or it was pure. Uh, there, there were... Um, there were classes of ointment. You could have really, really pure ointment or you could have ointment that was less pure, just like uh, carrots of gold. Uh, you, you've got uh, gold that is alloyed with other metals and so it's got less gold in it and you've got uh, pure gold that is less alloyed with other metals. The ointment that Mary brings here is genuine or it's pure. It would have been incredibly, incredibly expensive. But Mary was willing to bring this fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to her God. But then out of the stillness of this moment, we see another voice break through the silence. Write this down, number three, the protest. The protest. Find verses four and five there in your Bible. Mark writes here, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And so they scolded her. They scolded her. There's an absolute uprising here in the house of Simon the leper. Here Mary comes in an act of pure worship to her Lord. She brings her most expensive uh, item, that which is costly and dear to her, Without reservation, with reckless abandonment, she breaks the flask and she empties its contents upon her Lord in pure worship and now she's scolded in protest. Mark's Gospel doesn't attribute a name to the one who called Mary's actions a foul, but John tells us that these were the words of Judas. These were the words of Judas. John writes, but Judas Iscariot, One of Jesus' disciples who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And here's the answer. Because it was better bestowed upon the Lord. Judas was outraged that such a costly possession in his estimation would have been wasted upon Jesus. What do we know about Judas? Well, Judas was the treasurer of Jesus' disciples, interestingly enough. He was in charge of the finances of the ministry. Judas knew the cost of everything, but he knew the value of nothing. He knew what everything cost, 
we see that demonstrated. We see that displayed here in our text. But he knew the value of nothing. Judas shouted here, what injury, what disservice, and what injustice to the poor that that ointment would be wasted. You see, it was customary to give gifts on the evening of the Passover to the poor. And Mary's ointment would have made a remarkable gift had it been sold and its value or its cost been given to the poor. It it would have helped many. But Judas, the self-serving opportunist, was only concerned with advancing himself and lining his own pockets. You see, Judas knew that if the ointment was sold and the funds put in the treasury, that he would have access to those funds. Judas did not care about the poor. Judas cared about lining his own pockets. And so when Mary brings this expensive ointment, he sees dollar signs. And he sees dollar signs streaming down Jesus' head to his feet instead of streaming into his own pockets. Matthew Henry says, The reigning love of money is heart theft, just as much as anger and revenge are heart murder. Heart theft. How do you view money? How do you use what God has entrusted to you? Judas, again, cared nothing for the poor. But we can see the absolute contrast between light and darkness here. We see Mary had a a soft heart, whereas Judas had a very hard and thorny heart. Judas probably thought that he would slide into Jesus' kingdom and he would have his hands all over the money there as well. Reading into the text just a little bit here, let me, let me state that on the onset. Judas could have thought, I know what I have access to now, and so just wait until Jesus' kingdom comes. This kingdom that Jesus has been talking about, wait until his kingdom comes, and then, then I will have my hands on much more. But you see, when Jesus starts to talk about dying and going to a cross, Now the dollar signs in Judas' eyes were probably getting smaller and smaller. Judas is probably thinking to himself, now now wait a second, I was thinking about the kingdom coming. I I knew the compensation that I have now as the treasurer of of Jesus' ministry, and I was looking forward to this kingdom coming when when Jesus would set himself up as the king, and, and I would likely have access to greater funds there. But now that Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection, now that Jesus is talking about being crucified, the dollar signs in Judas's eyes are likely getting smaller and smaller and smaller. He was probably thinking that he wasn't going to get any compensation for these three years of his life that he had wasted following a dying Jesus around likely his motivation and so you can see why he would scold Mary for what was in his estimation a waste all that pent up hostility and greed came flying out of Judas's mouth as Mary pours costly ointment over Jesus Luke 6.45 out of an overflow of the heart finish the sentence what I heard. (laughs) Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Luke 6.45. Be a good to memorize this week. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Here's another good one to memorize. How about Matthew 6.21? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be 
also. There your heart will be also. What ungodliness disguised in a sympathetic comment. What piety to describe, or to disguise rather, unrighteousness. Judas was a wolf in sheep's clothing. The sad thing here is, is that Judas, for, for all the, the years that he spent uh, walking streets with Jesus, being around the ministry of Jesus, seeing Jesus interact with other people, for all that time Judas still had not learned that Jesus can see right through his smoke and mirrors. And let me just remind us that Jesus can see right through our smoke and mirrors too. Here's another good one to memorize. Hebrews 4.13. Hebrews 4.13 tells us that the we're naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's no hiding. There's no running. He sees through our facade if there is one. He sees right to the heart. And he doesn't see the heart, but he sees the thoughts and the intentions and the motivations that reside within the heart. Jesus is very concerned at what goes on in our heart. There's no pulling the wool over Jesus' eyes. There's no pretending to be godly. All are laid naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We've seen the plot to kill Jesus. We've seen the preparation, Mary busting into the, the meal, pouring her most costly uh, possession upon Jesus' head. We've seen the protest in Judas' response here. What a waste in his estimation. But now we see the praise. Write that down, number four, the praise. Let me draw your attention to verses 6 through 9. Look there in your Bible. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For the poor you will always have with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Listen to Jesus' words of praise here. Matter of fact, this is the first time Jesus speaks in this passage, and Jesus' words are in direct opposition to Judas and the disciples who likely followed suit. I can imagine Jesus' voice just towering over the voice of Judas when he said, Leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Why are you scolding her? Look at verse 6. The first thing that Jesus says here is that she, Mary, has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done a beautiful thing to me. In the Greek, there's two words for good. There's the word agathos, which describes something which is morally good. And then there's the word kalos, or kalos, which describes a thing which is not only good, but which is lovely or which is beautiful. That's the word that Jesus uses here. What she has done is kalos to me. It is good, it is lovely, it is beautiful. It is a beautiful thing. Secondly, Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you. You'll always have the poor. Wherever you go, they'll always be there, but you won't always have me. Boy, there is some foreshadowing here 
I mean, if we haven't seen it up to this point in Mark's Gospel, you can't escape it now. It is crystal clear that Jesus is headed to the cross. He says, you won't always have me. You won't always have me. I can't help but to wonder what is going on in Jesus' mind as he sat around the table, as he reclined around the table that evening. I mean, the cross was, was looming. His hours, his earthly hours here were few. And Jesus' words here, you will always have the poor with you, they draw a line in the sand as it pertains to life's priorities. To be sure, Jesus is not arguing as to whether or not serving the needs of the poor is a good thing. We need to be clear about that. Jesus is not arguing that point. He's not saying it is a bad thing to serve the needs of the poor. As a matter of fact, Scripture is replete with passages that celebrate the believer's service to those who are in need. I think we see one of those passages in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is speaking here and he says, The religious will answer me saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And then the king, Jesus speaking here, will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it also to me. I mean, so this is just one of many places. Scripture is replete with passages that celebrate the believers helping to alleviate the needs of the needy. Jesus is not uh, trying to create an either-or here. What he is doing is drawing a line in the sand as it pertains to priorities. The priorities. He says, you will always have the poor. They aren't going anywhere. You can circle the globe, and in every city, in every country, among every people group, the poor exist. They always will. Jesus is not advocating that we forget about them. What he is doing is upping the ante on where our priorities should lie. What he's saying there is that he is absolute and that all other lesser allegiances are to be relative to him. You'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. And then Jesus goes on here and he says, speaking about Mary, that she has done what she could. Look at verse 8. Mary's act of worship to Christ wasn't just beautiful, it wasn't just chaos, but it was total. She did what she could. She gave what she could. It was absolute, total worship. You see, if love is true, there must always be a certain extravagance in it. True love does not calculate less or more. Mary's gift and act of worship were with absolute lack of thought. It was without reservation. She didn't measure out a drop or two of, of ointment and say, well, here's a couple of drops for Jesus' head and here's a couple of drops for Jesus' feet. True worship is audacious. True love says, if it gives all it has, then that gift would still be too little. I was reminded this week in my study of Isaac Watts' words, this is a familiar hymn to us all. Isaac said this, Were the whole realm of nature mine? If I had everything, if the whole realm of nature were my possession, that would be an offering far too small. 
Love so amazing, love so divine, as demonstrated in our Savior, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so a good question to ask ourselves here this morning is, what is my devotion to Christ costing me? What is my devotion to Christ costing me? If it's not costing me anything, I need to at least ask a set of questions as to whether or not it's sacrificial. True love is always sacrificial. Love can also be seen and that there are things which we may have the opportunity to do, we may only have the opportunity to do them once. It's one of life's greatest tra- uh, tragedies that when we are oftentimes moved to do something beautiful, we don't do it. We don't do it. We have that inclination, we have that thought, maybe I ought to, or hey, this would be a good opportunity to, and then that desire is cut short. It may be that second thoughts suggest that whatever that is wouldn't be practical. It may be that People might think I'm awkward if I do that. It may be I feel too shy to do that. But one of life's greatest tragedies is that oftentimes when we're moved to do something good, we don't do it. We don't do it. We stop short. We stop short. The impulse is strangled at birth. The world would be much lovelier if there were more people like Mary who acted on her impulse of love because she knew in her heart of hearts that if she did not do it now, she may not have the opportunity to do it at all. She has done what she could. And then Jesus goes on and he says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. What's going on in these words here? It's probable that Mary had decided some time ago, long ago, that she was going to save this ointment for Jesus. It seems as though she was one of the few that was catching on uh, as Jesus was talking about his, his dwindling days and his imminent death. Remember that Jesus would tell his disciples that he was going to be delivered up and die? Matter of fact, he told his disciples that just back in Matthew or uh, Mark rather, chapter 8. Verse 31, Jesus clearly, explicitly told his disciples that he would be delivered up and that he would die. How did his disciples respond? They often replied, no, Jesus, you're not going to die. Come on. But Mary seemed to get it. Mary seemed to understand. Was it a woman's intuition? I don't know. I'm not sure. But I know that she got it, at least in part here. She had heard Jesus talk time and time again about his death. She would have been witness to the rising tension surrounding Jesus' ministry, and she may have thought to herself, if I don't anoint him now, I may not get another chance. And so she makes use of the moment. Right? Not caring about what anyone else will think about her, not caring about what anyone else might say about her, she makes use of the moment. And her act of worship revealed that she probably uh, realized a little bit more than Jesus' disciples. 
It's interesting to note that in Mark chapter 16, we'll be there just shortly, Mary was not one of the women who came to anoint Jesus, uh, to anoint his body after his death. We don't know why, but she wasn't there. Warren Wearsby writes this, he says, Mary was giving the roses before the funeral. She was giving the roses before the funeral. She has anointed my body for burial beforehand, Jesus said. And then lastly, look at what Jesus says in praise of Mary. Look at verse 9. Jesus declares that what Mary has done will be told in memory of her. Friends, deeds of kings and important rulers and all the rich and famous, when all of those things are long gone and forgotten, people will remember the devotion of Mary because it lives on in the testimony of God's Word. And so I was thinking this week, again in my study, what, what will your legacy be? When you're long gone, what will people say about you? What will people remember about you? Will it have any connection to your worship? What she has done will be told in memory of her. And then lastly, write this down this morning, the promise. We've seen the plot. We've seen Mary's preparation. We've seen the protest of Judas. We've seen Jesus' praise of Mary. And then lastly here, in the concluding two verses this morning, we see the promise. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see, in verses 4 and 5, Judas is left staring at the perceived loss of personal enrichment. And so what does he do? What does he do? Well, he takes every opportunity to go create another. You see, Judas wanted out, I, I believe, at this point, but he didn't want out empty-handed. And so Judas probably left that evening under the cover of darkness and walked the two miles from Bethany back to Jerusalem to find the chief priests and the Pharisees. I mean, what an absolute tragedy to have been in such proximity to the truth and yet have missed everything. Friends, don't, don't be a Judas here this morning. There are many, many people who sit in churches every single Sunday and this Sunday alike who sit in such proximity to the truth, who, who sit under the teaching, the clear teaching of God's word, the clear proclamation of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet they miss it. Repent. Believe. Judas shows up in Jerusalem, and in Matthew chapter 26, Judas asks this question. He says, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Now, Mark doesn't include that question. Matthew's gospel includes that question. As spoken by Judas to the chief priests and the Pharisees, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? It's interesting to note here that Judas did not even have a specific request for compensation. It was just, what will you give me? He didn't say, here's what I want. If you give me this, then I'll, I'll betray him and hand him over to you. It's just, what will you give me? No specific request for compensation. 
Just give me something so I can wash my hands of this fool that I've been wasting my time with. The parallel passage goes on to say that they paid him 30 pieces of silver and in that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. 30 pieces of silver, a, a, a few months' wages is all that it was. It's interesting also to note that in Exodus chapter 21, 30 pieces of silver was the cost of a slave. 30 pieces of silver was the cost of a slave. Judas didn't care about the poor. He didn't care about Jesus either. And friends, let me tell you that Judas was not the last to sell out Christ. Jesus has been sold out by a billion Judases since then. Anyone who does not trust Christ as Lord and Savior has sold him out. Listen to me here. You might say to yourself, I've, I've never sold out Jesus. I've never betrayed Jesus. I, I would never give him over for a simple 30 pieces of silver. Well, friends, let me tell you this. Whatever it is that keeps you from repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, that's what it is that you have sold him out for. That's what it is. That's the price you've sold him out for. And Christians, let me remind us, every time we sin, every time we exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things, namely ourselves, rather than the creator, in that moment we too have sold Christ for a cheap imitation that will only leave us empty-handed and empty-hearted. You see, sin promises, but it never fulfills. It never satisfies. Every time we sin, whether it's a lustful thought, whether it's a devious motive or intention, whether it's what we think is just a little white lie, whether it's disobedience, whatever the manifestation of sin, in that moment, we have sold Jesus out for a cheap imitation. Sin always promises, but it never satisfies. Let me close with this thought this morning. Look ahead in your Bible. You may need to turn the page, but find verses 22 through 24. Mark 14, 22 through 24. Probably has the subtitle there in your Bible, Institution of the Lord's Supper. Look at these verses. As they were eating, this is Jesus and his disciples, he, Jesus, took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Friends, I don't think that there's any coincidence to the fact that Mary breaks and pours a flask of costly ointment over the head and the feet of Jesus just a handful of verses before Jesus speaks about breaking and pouring himself out in an act of unbridled love for all those who would repent and believe. I think Mark intends us to see the love, of Mary, or the love of Mary for Christ as a faint and miniature echo of God's love to his people. A picture of Christ's sacrifice, albeit on an infinitely smaller scale. 
You see, just as Mary broke the flask so that all of its contents poured out over Christ's head, so too on the cross, the flask of Christ's body is broken and its contents, literally his blood, is poured out. If we're moved by Mary's love for Christ, the creature pouring out such costly oil, such costly ointment over the infinitely worthy Creator's head, how much more should we be moved by God's love in Christ to His creatures? The Creator pouring Himself out for the creation who is undeserving. You see, the disciples were indignant towards Mary's lavish display of affection for her Lord, But how much more should we be absolutely staggered by the display of love that we see on Calvary's cross? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the Lamb of God, without spot or defect or any blemish, was broken and poured out for us. Do you know that, Jesus? Do you know him by faith and repentance? Not just do you know about him, not just do you know some Bible stories, not just did you grow up in Awana or church or youth group or Sunday school or Sunday school teacher or leader in the church. Do you know him by faith and repentance? Have you turned your back on your sin, turned your faith on Christ? No turning back, no turning back. If you haven't, we encourage you to do that right where you sit this morning. Cast yourself upon Jesus' matchless mercy and grace. Receive the gift of salvation that you might become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Trust him. Trust him today. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, What great um, stuff there is for us here in Mark chapter 14. It it riddles us. Uh, Lord, I pray that it awakens us. I pray that it encourages us. Uh, to worship you lavishly. Uh, Lord, we can know the, the love that we have for you by our sacrifice. God, I pray that we, each and every one of us, would contemplate uh, in the hours ahead, the days ahead, what is my devotion to Christ costing me? God, I pray that we would worship you with absolute reckless abandonment, that we would, that we would count the cost and we would consider you worthy. And... Uh, We're the whole of creation ours. We're everything in creation, a possession of ours. To give that to you would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, it demands my life, my soul, my all. Father, if there's a lost person here this morning, I pray that you would draw them to Christ. I pray that they would turn from their sin, they would repent of their sin, and trust in Jesus Christ alone and that you would cause them to become a new creation in Christ. Give them a new heart, remove that heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, and give them your indwelling and abiding Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. Pray that as we go forth today, we would go forth with our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, the author, the captain, uh, and the chief shepherd of our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.